Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from, I teach them. You can even aspire about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. To love identity. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flango. In 2005, Yale professor Walter Gilliam published a study entitled Pre-Kindergartners Left Behind, Expulsion Rates in State Pre-Kindergarten Systems. The study quickly made waves nationally by illuminating the discrepancy in expulsion rates between boys and girls and children of different races. It found that boys are more likely to be suspended than girls, and that African-American preschoolers are about twice as likely to be expelled as their white counterparts. But it also found that African-American boys are suspended at a rate exponentially higher than boys in other racial categories, accounting for nearly 92% of the expulsions for all African-American children. Years ago, Gilliam presented his findings at a conference in Baltimore. In attendance was an education professional named Patria Hicks. When she heard these numbers, something clicked. And then my mind went back to when I was in school and having boys suspended and in trouble and going to the principal's office and standing in the corner. And it just immediately went back to that. And in my head, I said, I knew it. Today, Hicks is an early childhood education specialist working with groups like the Maryland State Department of Education. In this episode, we talked about what hearing about Gilliam's study was like for her and how being raised in a predominantly African-American community affected her childhood. So Patria, uh, I wanted to start by asking you about something that I read in one of the articles that you had written. Um, You talked about how you grew up and you lived through the doll test and the Mamie and Kenneth Clark doll test that we've talked about on this podcast before. And you remember your parents debating it and having dolls um, that looked like you as part of your childhood. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, what do you remember about those conversations? So what I was would remember, what I remember, I think I was probably about eight years old. It was right before Christmas. And, you know, just kind of talking about the, what we wanted for Christmas and, and the type of dolls that were out. And um, just basically going to Sears and Roebuck and, and you know, pointing to, to some dolls. My dad was very into um, the, the doll test. We used to always, I'm, I do remember hearing them having conversations, like it could be over civil rights or politics or religion, um, quite quite frequently. And I do remember this. Um, study being discussed and and my dad was very adamant about us having a dog that had brown skin which for me as an eight-year-old and not really seeing it didn't make any sense to me a doll is a doll is a doll but um, I remember him bringing up the the topic um, in the conversation and kind of going back and forth and saying I want them to have a dog that looks like them and and my my mother just kind of kind of seeing it, but not really, you know, raising a big fuss over it. But I just remember hearing them having this conversation that as an eight year old, I didn't see what the what what the big deal was. And until now that I look back on it and I go, oh, mm-hmm. that's why it was so important. It was something that was brought up. I think about 1965, 66. 
because of the um, civil rights that was, that was going on. Both of my parents and my grandparents attended a historically black college and university in Richmond, Virginia, which is Virginia Union University. So that conversation was always in the, the forefront of everything that we did and and said and was. And I remember hearing my my parents telling, you know, certain stories about going into different department stores and how if they tried on a hat or shoes or clothing, they had to purchase it. There was nothing that they could try on and leave in the store. And just, you know, hearing those kind of conversations as an 8-year-old, it started me thinking, hmm, what is actually going on? You know, mm-hmm. just just being a child playing and and not realizing all of these things, and then all of a sudden having to become aware of this outside world that... um I'm now seeing through my my parents' eyes and my parents' experiences that I, that w- really wasn't a part of me at that time. So, whenever you talk about your uh, your parents really making sure that you have a, a doll that has brown skin, what uh, d- was that something that they had done since you were little, or something that was prompted by the doll study? I don't remember if it was prompted by the doll study. I, you know what? I would say probably so, only because I don't remember them having a discussion about it um, when I was earlier. I mean, when I was younger, probably because I wasn't aware. I'm not really sure, but probably because of the doll study, I would say. Mm-hmm. And are those the, is that one of your earliest memories of race? And I'm wondering if, there, if you have uh, other memories of, ra- uh, of race as a young girl. I do. Um, I was raised in a, a, a predominantly black community. However, I'm Catholic, so I went to a Catholic school that was predominantly white. And I remember in, I think I was either first or second grade, going to school, and this was, I would say, 65, 66, maybe 67. And by my, my sister and I, you know, just knew at the school, playing on the playground, and a little white boy came up to us, came up to us and said, hey, N-word. And we kind of looked at each other, didn't know what it meant, but we knew in our family that's a word that you did not use. That was just as bad as calling someone a curse word. And we looked at each other and just we were, were really upset. Went back into the school and we went into the cafeteria. Well, the uh, our cafeteria personnel were were mostly black women, and we kind of told you know what what had happened and and what was said and you know how upset we were and we we just wanted to go home, and I remember them comforting us and say you know and actually offering us ice cream for that day, but that was the first time I realized that I was something different than everybody else around me. It just was. Something that wasn't prompted, I just was happened to be there, and this other child was there too, and um, that was our meetup. So when in your life did you start like going back to that moment as an inflection point in your life? Like when did you, I guess, in the realized, was it like as immediate as that happened then, or was this something that you kind of, as you began your work uh, in education, thought more along back along to your own childhood and then saw that as an inflection point? So when I start looking back, um, that happened when I, I attended college. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, I was I was raised Catholic, so I attended and a predominantly white, all-girls um, collegiate high school. 
So I I would say out of maybe 200 girls, probably about 20, 20 black girls there. So, you know, you notice the, the difference in the way they were raised and the amount of money they had. Some would drive in cars, and I would ride the city um, uh, uh, transit, um, um, the, the public transit, so I can get to school. And that was just an interesting four years. I say that was a, a great experience, but mostly it was a great experiment to mm. kind of see the difference in life. So once I left high school, I attended Virginia Union, which I said is the um, HBCU. Yeah, it's your parents' and, alma mater. Yes. <laughs> and that was an eye-opener to be on a campus of scholars and professors who had a vested interest in your um, future success. Not that it didn't happen at the high school level, but there was a different feel to it. It felt like like home, like like I had to succeed, and they were going to make sure that I did. They knew my, my parents' background, my family background, my community, but these were um, these were the um, uh, teachers who, who were actually a part of the civil rights movement, who was actually out there on the front line, and we would hear stories in every single class. It was our history and our experience and our pride was weaved into every single class I attended. And it was just all around me. And that's when I realized some of the things I was learning in some of my classes, I'm like, we did that? You know, we talked about mm-hmm. the um, pyramid, the pyramids in the Harlem Renaissance and um, T- Tuskegee Airmen and all of these wonderful things. And I'm like, we did that? Until I got to the point where I said, we did that. Mm-hmm. So it was just so much pride and I'm thinking how did I miss all of this I'm 18 19 20 and not that I didn't get the information from my parents but to get it the way I got it in books and literature and art and music and I'm like oh my we did that so that kind of stopped me looking back and that's when I went into education for a particular reason and hoping that, okay, now we can start having that conversation and we can include it. And that was in 1977, which is, what, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? I hate to say. Years ago. Oh <laughs> no one's God. counting. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So, and now I'm, I'm in this space where I'm looking at the stats and the numbers and looking at the achievement gaps and the wealth gaps, and the numbers seem the same. It mm-hmm. does not feel like children of color are doing well. And I've been in this business for 40 years, and I feel like I got to do something. You know, I, I have, have we been standing still? What did I miss? What do I need to go back to and, and so I can fix it and remember? Because the history aware of the saying is, if you do not know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. So that's why I'm going back and try to figure some things out so I can do better. Mm. So I think something that in talking about how things are, you know, there while there have been some improvement, there are still mm-hmm. a long ways to go. And I think that there is definitely some similarities that exist in navigating the that relationship between the school and the home, especially for African-American children today. So I'm wondering for you, as somebody who came, who had parents who were educated at an HBCU and had a 
and had a, a firm idea or firm uh, ideas about race and talked about race with their children at a young age. How did you navigate having parents that were able to talk like this with a predominantly white Catholic school environment? Um, in the Catholic school environment, I, we didn't talk about it, mm-hmm. it, it because there were there there were no classes about it. Um, I don't think they even had Black History Month then. So it was, but I, what I do remember is that Roots came out in 76, I think I was a junior in high school, and I could see the discomfort on a lot of the the um, girls' faces. Like when I walked in the room, the conversation would stop. And I had a feeling that maybe they would, were talking about Roots or just didn't know what to say around me. Mm-hmm. And I And I have to say, People of color, and I can't speak for everybody, but I would say a good amount, have to hide their discomfort so that other people are, are so that other people do not feel uncomfortable in in our presence. Because now you have to have the conversation, and people are feeling um, de- de- defensive, or you know, I, I, it I, it wasn't me, I wasn't there, I you know. Uh, um, it did, you know, I I wasn't responsible, so just trying to even have that conversation. A lot of times, I just didn't because mm. I you you don't know how to really start it. You know, where's the starting point? Where where do I begin so that someone else can kind of figure out what it is I'm talking about without me having to explain it and then defend it? Mm-hmm. And if you have to defend it, that's exhausting. Oh, I yeah I. I, I surely can only imagine but i think that 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 navigating that defensiveness and talking about race because that's what we try to do on this podcast is actually try to talk about race Mm -hmm. in in a manner that's not defensive so how so how do you how do you manage to to have these have conversations about race well knowing Mm -hmm. that it's such it promotes such or it invites uh, often uh defensive postures from people so what I, I do is I start the conversation, and I know that any time that I put children, of course, at the center of the conversation, people listen, because mm-hmm. that's everybody's passion in this field, speaking of young young children. So I do go back to um, Eric Erickson's psychosocial stages, mm-hmm. and that's something that everybody can, you know, actually get get involved in and agree with. So, you know, I talk about the stage one is the trust versus mistrust, and the stage two is autonomy versus shame and doubt, and then, of course, stage three is initiative and guilt. And then I kind of think about, I try to tell them, think about what children are going through at these stages. And then I try to add, there's actually another developmental stage that early childhood um, um uh, teachers and professionals don't talk about, and that's the racial and cultural identity development. That doesn't get talked about. I want to say not at all. So now I'm ready to put that into the conversation. That should that is that is just as important as Piaget and Eric Erickson and Maslow and and everybody else. That is a conversation that um, should be just as important as all of these other um, child development stages. Now, we, our organization's positive racial identity development, so obviously we understand, but I'm wondering, (laughs) but I'm hoping for, I wonder if you could explain why that is so important. Um, That's, 
so important for like everybody because everybody goes through it. Mm-hmm. It is not just something that, that that children of color go through. Everyone goes through that. Part of the the study I I found was the amount of of books of 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 children literature that represents all children and out of the books that represent all children 73 percent if i'm not mistaken the number represent white children and i'm like oh my gosh and then i found that and this is from the study from 2015 that 12 percent represent animals and trucks but about 14% of those books represent children of color. So we're like right in front of, of um, trucks and animals. But then I kind of think of it on the other side. What does that look like for white children who see themselves all the time? And maybe that could be a pressure, you know, because they're thinking that it's them all the time and there's no one else that's involved because they aren't seeing any other children of color except for, um, in the story, maybe a, a sidekick or a best friend or um, a teacher or just one other person who, who has a, a, a two-dimensional um, uh, representation in the story as opposed to having a child of color as the main character in the story, as a hero in the story. That's just as important as... Um, uh, us of children of color seeing themselves, all children need to see everyone represented represented in books. I completely agree, and I think that that's something that I want to talk about you in one minute, but one Mm -hmm. thing that I wanted to bring up is the fact that not only are you uh, an education professional, but you're also a mother, and Mm -hmm. you have raised two, uh, a boy and a girl, am I correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm wondering how you open the lines of communication with your own child growing, your own children growing up about race. So we were um, previously um, a, a military family. We were stationed over in Germany. So we live Germany, Colorado, Texas, Florida. And the mix of the, com- the community was always mixed. So I never really had to have that, that conversation. I I pushed education on my children academics so they were noticed in school not for behavior problems but for their academics and their and 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 their intellect because I wanted them to have a an even playing field so they were always the the lead in the play or they were you know top of the class or speaker in the class so they always had that positive self identity um on on a, an, an everyday basis, of course, that's because I'm I'm an educator and that's what I do. Um, but I do remember my daughter coming to me. She was probably in second grade and said, "Mom, one of the girls in my class said I can't play with her be, because my skin isn't white." And I'm like, "Really? You know, we're still doing that." It was like mm-hmm. 1999. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, we're still doing that." Okay, okay. Well, we have to. So I said, just go tell her that you have melanin in your skin. That's the only difference. You that you know that's that what that is what makes makes your skin brown. She still had a little bit of issue with that after she you know grew up a little bit. My son, the conversation I had to have with him is um, I want to say in late 1990s, maybe early 2000. The big fad for boys was the pants sagging with no belt. Oh sure. Yeah, that one. 
so I'm like, listen, I know, you know, some kids can wear that. So that was when my 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 uh, my kids' dad and I had to sit there and have the talk where you can't wear everything. You have to look a certain way when you go outside. You have to, and then of course we had to say if you're ever pulled over. So we had to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. This is hands on the steering wheel or don't move too fast. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Be respectful. Answers questions. And then call me when it's done. And we had to have that conversation probably with my son a little later than my daughter because she was introduced to it a little earlier. So did you have, you, we mentioned books before, did you have go-to mm-hmm. books for your children whenever they were young that you used to show characters that looked more like them? I didn't have as many as I probably should have had. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did not. It didn't, honestly, back then, it really didn't occur to me. There were mm-hmm. a couple books out, um, and there were, look, uh, it was a couple amount of books that were that were trickling out on the scene. So I said, okay, this is, you know, this looks fine. But honestly, at that time, I was giving them so much of me, I didn't think about um, books as being part of it. They they saw the, our, our family raised, so we had Sunday dinner every Sunday, so they got to see uncles and cousins and grandparents and um, listen to family stories. So, so they had a richness of their heritage and their culture um, given to them on a regular basis. So I didn't the books as being a part of that so how so how did you come to this to understand the impact of books that I'm oh my goodness you know what and I keep I, I was asking myself that well I, I I love books and I want to say oh, I tell you where, when it was it was in 2016 I listened to I was at a conference with dr. Walter Gilliam Gilliam and he was talking about his study on implicit bias mm-hmm. and how children um, need to really see them see themselves. And after that training, he talked about uh, children that were um, su- su- suspended and expelled in pre-K and how it meant that actually teachers were not seeing children um, the way that I see children or, or the way that I would see ch- children of color. So I'm thinking the only way that teachers are going to see children of color is if they see the books represented with children of color. And then I thought, well, if that's the case, then children of color need to see themselves in the book. So I guess I kind of went at it looking at how, how teachers will be able to see children the way I see to see children of color the way I see children of color is maybe through the books that they are reading to children, and then that translated down to where then children need to see that too. Hmm. So how yeah. how did teachers uh, respond whenever you talk uh, to them? Because I know now you've uh, presented at NAEYC and uh-huh. um, and as well as elsewhere, I'm sure. And I am wondering how teachers respond whenever you talk about the importance of having books that feature black characters okay, and characters oh, for all different uh, other races, but it's def- but for this particular podcast, black characters. Mm-hmm. So the, the very first time I presented, of course, I was nervous because I didn't know what it was going, you know, what the response was going to be. So I did talk about it. And one lady 
in the in the um, uh, in the audience said, "But what about if I don't have children in my classroom who who are not um, black children? I don't I don't think I really need these books." And honestly, I was stumped for a second, and I'm thinking, "Oh well, why am I going to answer this without making her feel uncomfortable?" Fortunately, there was someone else in in the audience, an African American um, lady, who actually said, um, "You don't have you don't have to have children of color. That children need to see all children in in books that represent them." And I was like, "Oh wow, that's that that was something that was an epiphany for me, mm. because I was so busy focusing on making sure." children of color saw saw themselves represented i didn't think about what that meant for the children who 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 70% of the time 70% of the time in the children and the stories they read saw themselves so that just let me know that okay i'm on the right track here i have to talk about it for all children not just for children of color so it's it's interesting to me just to hear even in that answer how uh, how you, as an African American woman, talking mm-hmm. about this with in a predominantly or the early education field is dominated by white women, mm-hmm. and how here how you have to navigate that a conversation where you the, your thought was how do I uh, do this without making her uncomfortable in this presentation, mm-hmm. and it's something you know I think that. You know, it's something that you you know think about innately. That it's something I I just I can't imagine that everybody would have to you know necessarily think like that. Mm-hmm. It's 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 definitely ongoing. I I just submitted a a training a couple of weeks ago um, on um, having books about um, black boys in the classroom, and I was met with mm, that you know you might and this was actually said you might make people feel uncomfortable and guilty. Why don't you try to open it up to talk about all children, and then you know you can add that to the conversation? And I'm like, okay, again, I have to make sure everybody's comfortable in the room, even though I'm uncomfortable. But this is something that I want to talk about. But okay, and I, I felt like I was selling out for a second. But I'm like, you know what? I have to get into the arena and have the conversation any way that I can get into the arena and have the conversation. Mm-hmm. So any, so, so even I kind of, I think, I think that's something that taught in people talking about race have, you know, navigate so much is, you know, how much do I, uh, am I willing to sanitize the message maybe a little yes. bit to actually get some of the message in versus mm-hmm. nothing at all? Exactly. Um, and I think that's why, when I look back over the last 40 years, why we've moved so slow, that's why. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know if anybody's ready to, ready to talk about it. I've gotten, you know, sometimes I have the conversation. I've I've gotten, you you know, why are you so negative? Why are you so angry? Why are you so combative? Why are you so aggressive? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, really? I was really talking with my inside voice. So it's... <laughs> It's exhausting, but I'm not, you know, I just go home, take a rest and come back out and do it all again. So I'm wondering, since I know a lot of your work and what a lot of what you've presented on has to deal with African-American boys in particular. And I'm wondering uh, if, well, first off, uh, why, what drew you to focus on boys? And secondly, do you, 
uh, have you received any of the, or how do you deal with pushback that you may receive for saying boy, like why are you focusing on boys versus uh, girls? Okay. So, um, like I said before, I was at a, at a conference listening to um, Dr. Gilliam. He mm-hmm. came to to uh, to uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and you know he he was talking about implicit bias, which I really didn't know what that was about. This was my my first introduction to even hearing him speak, and you know he he talked about um, having uh, behavior uh, uh, problems in the classroom, and and kids were were being referred to him, and he just he started a study. And we're we're looking at what what teachers felt were challenging be, behaviors because he realized that the majority that a lot of preschoolers were being expelled and, and suspended. So he wanted to look at what the what the dynamics were. And in the study, he realized that African American boys were expelled and suspended three times higher than any group. While I'm sitting in the conference and I'm listening to that. And you know my 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 ears turned up. I'm like, what happened? I'm thinking in my head, what? He, and he said, it's it's the the three the three Bs, the big black boy. And then my mind went back to when I was in school and having boys suspended and in trouble and going to the principal's office and standing in the corner and it just immediately went back to that. And in my head, I said, I knew it. So at the end of the the uh, you know his speech, he actually said, "Are there any questions or comments?" And my hand went up. I don't know who raised it, but it went up. And he <laughs> gave me the mic, <laughs> and I said, "All I can say is this has been a conversation in the African American community for years about what's happening to our boys." And I said, "I knew it. I knew it was something. I couldn't tell what it was. I couldn't blame it on anybody, but I knew something was different." Our boys are being treated differently. They are not being recommended for um, the talented and gifted like I think they should. I've taught in a, a affluent white, predominantly white school, and quote unquote inner city school, and I don't see any difference between the intellect, the motivation, the aptitude of any child. I don't see the difference. So that led me to believe. That's what's going on. Teachers are seeing black boys as bigger, less innocent, um, troublemakers, challenging behaviors, and they're being expelled out or being they're being re- re- referred to special education classes or pullouts or and they and they're coming up missing. And I just said to myself, I knew it. I knew it was something. I just didn't know what it was. I felt like if I stayed in this field and I worked harder and I trained more and I got more information, I re- that I could help fix it. And then I said, it, "I knew it." Mm-hmm. It must have. It must have been like a whirlwind of emotions in that moment because it's at the same time. It's like it's. I mean. Do you have these thoughts that you mm-hmm. might not be able to, like, you know, bring together at a, and then it's all, to have the, somebody tell you, yeah, like mm-hmm. you're not crazy. This is something that's I'm actually not crazy. happening, right? I'm, you know, and I, I, I remember just being on the mic telling everybody in the room, and I'm thinking to myself, I would probably lose my job after this, but okay. <laughs> I, said, I just said, I just want you to see our boys the way that I see them. I want you to see them as being 
brilliant and inquisitive and geniuses and creative and colorful and all of those wonderful attributes that any child that you would give your child I need you to see my child the way that I see my child and then I gave the mic back and I'm thinking I don't know what's going to happen after this but in that moment I, I I just I had to say what I had to say so how have you used books as your or as a way to start to bring that uh, to help that conversation happen to help people see the like you said young black children young black boys as who how you see them okay so what I I did I actually um, sub- submitted my one of my trainings to um, Washington DC the the uh, Office of Superintendent of Education, and I did get it approved in D.C. I'm still working here in Maryland, but that's okay. And what I certain books I selected to show what I call the the black experience. So some of the books that I chose, it was one about a, a mixed family, meaning the the uh, uh, parents were married, but they had children. Um, you know, uh, prior to them be getting married. So, um, like uh, a, a blended family, mm-hmm. I make sure I choose books that feature the dad in the story, mm. that he's there. That's very, very important. Um, and then I make sure that um, I talk about, I, I choose books that show um, um, black children just doing regular stuff like swimming. Um, reading a story, writing a book, just as 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 regular as possible. Um, not especially. I don't look at books that show um, hi- historical points, like you know, doing the um, civil rights era. I just I try to make them look as real, just like I see them, the same way I see them. The only book that I do introduce that is um, of historical content. Is, is titled Be, Before There Was Mozart, and it was this this kid, it's supposed to be a true story, um, jo- Joseph, Bo- oh, I'm going to spell his name, I mean, pronounce his name, but it's B-O-U-L-O-G-N-E, and he actually played the violin, and he was a talented violin player and musician in France. And the story goes that um, Wolfgang um, Mozart was actually in the audience listening to this this boy play the the violin, so just trying to get those those historical um, uh, tidbits of information that no one really knows about. And I think something too, because we work a lot with books, and we we recommend a lot of different books. And I think something that great that you mentioned is that it's it's not necessarily just about having a book that features a black character. It's not like there ha- like. There, there almost needs to be a little bit there because mm-hmm. there are ways to incorporate black characters positively, and there are ways mm-hmm. to use black characters as like, for lack of a better term, something like window dressing. Yes. And yes. so, and I'm so I'm very I'm, I'm glad to hear that that is something that you know you're thinking of uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So, and one thing that I uh, in that same vein, I'm wondering how. Because I, I feel I feel like just giving books is is while you know we can certainly it's definitely a, a step in the right direction. There's also mm-hmm. some it has to be some intentionality behind how you read those books to children. Mm-hmm. So how how do you you know uh, help 
teachers read those, uh, understand how to use these books properly with their in their classes? So I I do um, let them know not, there's not a particular time of the year to actually use it. Um, mm-hmm. Not just doing not just February not just month and yeah, yeah yeah not just January yeah, February all all the time. But look at at the theme of the story. Like there there's a story is titled the 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 ring bearer, and this is the little boy who his parents. Um, you know, that blended family, where mostly weddings may occur in May. So this will be a good story that you will use in May because some kids in the classroom might be ring bearers or flower girls or, or, or whatever it is. But just try to choose stories and read them um, that it kind of blends in with their curriculum or the time of year. So it doesn't... It's, 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 I'm going to say this, trying try to get like a, a nice balance on when you're going to read the story, but not just, you know, like that story time, but have it in different parts of the classroom, like in the in your science area, you're going to have um, books on maybe people who are black scientists or engineers or, you know, whatever it is, so that they're able to see people of color as just as productive as anyone else. Um, I think part of it, too, is before I can even do this, you kind of have to give people a training on why this is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's more so going back to introducing the racial racial country cultural identity development that that's part of the development so just like you need books on all different things this is this helps build that development in in all children so like i said if i bring it back to the child it's the center of the conversation and i talk about child development um, research brain development that that people start to kind of pay attention that this is a a even playing field that er everybody needs to participate in. So are there any books that you use now that you think maybe, oh, I wish I had this book whenever I was growing up, or I wish I had this book whenever I was uh, raising my children? Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm sure there are a few, but... Yeah, there's there's a few, um, and I don't have the name right here in front of me, um, but I just have a, a couple that I use um, when I do my my training. Um, one is titled "The The Ring Bearer" um, by Floyd Cooper. Uh, another is Kevin and His Dad, and this um, Kevin spends a day with his dad on Saturday, and they just do regular stuff, going to the park, going to the movies. Um, that's one of the books. What I add to to that story too, when I talk about Kevin and His Dad. There was a study by the Center for um, Disease Control, I think it was either 2013 or 2015, I can't remember which year, but it talked about um, dads who help their children either bathe or read stories or just with, with everyday activities. Black, da- um, black dads help children more than any other race. So when I read the story, I try to add a bit of history to it, too, just to kind of give them an insight into the um, to the black um, experience. 
Another one I have is when the beat was born. So I try to give like kids, this is for children six to 10. And this is the uh, creation of, of hip hop. That's a great story. Of course, um, before there was Mozart, that's another story. So I try to do stories that children, oh, I, I think it's hard. I got one more that this one is, um, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's a story about a little boy who goes, his his grandmother takes him swimming. And it's a really cool story because people don't realize that majority of black children do not know how to swim. So I try to add to, to the story those, those stats and why it's important for black kids to learn how to swim. And I think there's a website that, you know, and, and encourages that in children, too. Well, thank you so much, Patria, for giving us some, some insight into your own background and as well as uh, your work. And we appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you. In My Skin is a production of the University of Pittsburgh Pride Program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development and Early Education. Pride is part of Pitt's Office of Child Development. You can find every episode of In My Skin at racepride.pitt.edu. And you can find more about the Office of Child Development at ocd.pit.edu. Special thanks to our funders, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Hillman Family Foundations. This episode was produced by me, Adam Flango, with help from Pride Director Aisha White and Pride Director of Engagement Medina Jackson. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Make sure to subscribe to In My Skin anywhere you get podcasts, and tell a friend if you like it.